As the kids are making their way out, I just want to extend gratitude again to, to Daryl, to Carolyn, to uh, all of you who participate in the music here. There's, there, we've, we've never poured a penny into individuals to lead. Um, it's just amazing to me what the kind of music that, that we are able to enjoy and participate in. Uh, it's God's kindness to us. Thank you all for your uh, for your efforts there. The title of this morning's message is Died, Buried, Risen, According to the Scriptures. There is a reluctance among people in general and certainly in our culture to think deeply and seriously about death. Karen Heller of the Washington Post wrote an article some time ago entitled The Funeral as We Know It is Becoming a Relic just in time for the death boom. I quote, death is a given, but not the time-honored rituals. An increasingly secular, nomadic, and casual America is shredding the rules about how to commemorate death. And it's not just among the wealthy and the famous. Somber, embalmed body funerals with their $9,000 industry average price tag are, for many families, a relic. Instead of end-of-life ceremonies, I'm sorry, instead, end-of-life ceremonies are being personalized. Golf course, cocktail send-offs, backyard potluck memorials, more Sinatra and Clapton, less Ave Maria, more Hawaiian shirts, fewer dark suits. Families want to put the fun in funeral. She brings out some other things in the article. She says, funeral homes have completely revamped their business models. Ministers are now death celebrants who will perform a memorial palooza. Urns now resemble giant golf balls or whatever else you're into. One Oregon cemetery, she says, retrofitted a 1970s VW van, which is cool, painted with peace and love to house urns. Destination memorials are popular. One popular company in Hawaii performs 600 ash-scattering cruises, boasting 80 people per trip, per year, featuring ukulele players, conch shell blowers, and a release of white doves or monarch butterflies, whichever you prefer. People are hosting good-to-go parties. There are green funerals where you can be buried in a biodegradable coffin or a shroud. If you're fortunate enough to live in the state of Washington, you can even be composted. I quote, the company plans to use wood chips, alfalfa, and straw to turn bodies into one cubic yard of topsoil in 30 days. Heller quips, the industry is thinking outside the box. <laughs> the article points out that none of us are getting out of this alive and life is in and of itself a near-death experience. And as the title of the article bears out, all of this is just in time for the death boom, which is an obvious allusion to the passing generation of baby boomers. Ours is a culture, isn't it, that suppresses the truth about death. 
we close our eyes and stop up our ears and try to ignore it. Any conversation about death is cordoned off. It's funny to me, really, in a culture that is free to talk about just about any imaginable thing, death is the one thing that is utterly out of bounds. It is an absolute wet blanket on any conversation to talk about the reality of death. And yet it is utterly foolish to think that way, to live that way, to avoid, to ignore life's ultimate issue. There is nobody here this morning to whom this doesn't apply. Detachment from death puts us out of sync with the scriptures. The Bible teaches that death is inevitable and that life is eternal. And so the stakes could not be any higher when it comes to the issue of the resurrection. Eternal destinies hang in the balance. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? When you think about 80 years of life or say you live to be 106, what is that in comparison to all of eternity? It's nothing but a dot on a timeline. It is wisdom to live your entire life in light of your death. That is not morbid, that's wisdom. Thinking long and hard about death is wise, which is why Moses says, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. A wise person thinks often and deeply about this matter of death. And what is missing, among other things, in our culture is a really a biblical understanding, a biblical theology of death. The world can answer the how question without much difficulty. He died of a car accident. She had a terminal disease. My dad passed of COVID. What the world does not do and ultimately cannot do, though philosophers have tried, is to answer the question, why we die. Scientists would say, well, it's an evolutionary world. All of it's by happenstance and by chance, whatever that is. And ultimately, this is just all part of the the circle of life. Others would treat it simply in a a resigned form, just in saying, you know, death and taxes, what what are you going to do? Let's just press on, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I'm here to tell you this morning that the Bible says life is linear. It is not circular. You did not come from some sort of organic goop, and there you're going back to organic goop. You were created by God. And God has called you to life. He's given you life. And because of our sin, we have rebelled against God, we have distanced from God, we have brought upon ourselves a death sentence. Death is an unwelcome intruder into God's good world. And so the ultimate answer as to why did so-and-so die, it's because so-and-so is a sinner. It's because the wages of sin is death. It's because each of us has rebelled against our creator, and the soul that sins, the Bible says, shall die. 
God created one man and gave him one command. He gave him the whole of the garden to eat from, but he said, do not eat from that tree which is in the center of the garden. There is the one command he was given, and man failed at that command. God said to the man, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. And death entered the world through Adam. And death has worked its deadly result ever since. Death really is the necessary and just consequence for a sinful life. But death is not the end of the story. Death doesn't get the last word. God does. Dogmatically, the Bible teaches that there is, in fact, life after the grave. It will either be in heaven or it will be in hell. Each one of us will be in one place or the other. There is no third place. And this is why the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news. And that's really the point of this morning's message on Resurrection Sunday. We are going to talk about the resurrection at length, but it's ultimately around this question, what is the gospel? And the gospel is a message about God, it's a message about sin, it's a message about a Savior, Jesus Christ, and it is a message of hope about a resurrection life. And what so often escapes our notice is that this gospel is not just a New Testament phenomenon. The scripture that Jesus read, the scripture that the disciples and the apostles preached was not the New Testament, Matthew to Revelation, but it was the Older Testament, Genesis to Malachi. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life, but it is these that bear witness of me. He's referring to the Old Testament. I want you to turn with me where we will see that the Old Testament, in fact, does reveal the Messiah. Turn with me to the book of Luke. We, we read earlier, Alan did, from chapter 24, and I want to go back there and just point out a few things. Luke chapter 24, and we'll pick up in verse 25. These Emmaus Road disciples have just expressed their disappointment to this mysterious individual that they are walking with. And it is the resurrected Christ. In verse 25, he, Jesus, said to them, oh, foolish men, and slow to believe what? All that John and Luke and Paul have written about the resurrection? No. He says, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, not with Matthew, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And when you see that word scripture, you should think Old Testament. Look over at verse 32. 
Then they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? That's what preachers do. They explain the scriptures. God has spoken, and what God has said must be articulated. God called men to preach that they might declare his truth. And so it is here. Jesus comes. God had one son. He made him a preacher. And Jesus declares the truth to these men, and their hearts are burning within them as he is speaking about himself from all the scriptures. Look down at verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke with you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, this is nothing new. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, and I want you to pay attention to this, this is the gospel that Jesus authorizes. You'll see it again in Corinthians, but this is the gospel which Jesus put his stamp of approval on. He gives us a very nice outline. Thus it is written, verse 46, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus says, here is the gospel. It is those truths that surround the cross of Christ. It is those truths that surround the empty tomb. And it is the declaration that you can be forgiven your sins on account of that cross and that empty tomb if you will but repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel in a nutshell. That is the gospel that Jesus authorizes. And these are the very things, if we were to take the time to go through the book of Acts, you can trace it out yourself. You go look at any sermon in the book of Acts, and what you will find is time after time after time, there are those three legs to the gospel, those truths that surround the cross, those truths that surround the resurrection, and repentance and faith. Over and over and over again, the disciples understood full well what they were being called to preach. And that is the gospel that I preach to you this morning. The question is, can that gospel be preached from the Old Testament? Could you preach the gospel to someone who rejected the New Testament? Paul did it all the time. Well, if you've got a pencil or a pen, you can jot these passages down. We're going to move very quickly today, but you ought to be able to do an adequate job of it if you pay attention for the next few minutes. Let's look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the most definitive resurrection passage in the Bible. It's an entire chapter given to one issue centrally, and that is the matter of the resurrection. And in this text, we are given again the three irreducible affirmations, the bare bones of Christianity, three essential truths which must be affirmed if you are to make it to heaven. These are take it or leave it. They are non-negotiable. 
They are cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. Nobody can rightfully call themselves a Christian who does not embrace all of these things. And the stakes, my friends, couldn't be higher. It is the difference between salvation and damnation. It is the difference between eternal joy and everlasting judgment. It is the difference between heaven and hell. These things are of first importance. Let's read the text together. We'll read 1 Corinthians 15, just verses 1 through 8. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul begins by speaking about the Corinthians' reception of the gospel. Look with me at verse 1. He says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. He had preached it to them before. He's reminding them of it again. You'll note that he calls them brethren. He presumes that most of the hearers to whom he writes are Christians, though he also at the same time recognizes that there are probably some sitting in that congregation who are not Christians. That's true in any gathering of people. There are those who are genuinely in the faith, those who are, whether consciously or not, faking it, and then there are those who refuse it altogether. You're always preaching to a mixed crowd. And he's reminding them of this gospel that he had preached in their hearing. It's the very gospel that they had believed. You'll notice, he says, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the faithful word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. They had received it. They had believed it. They had accepted it. They had heard it from Paul's mouth. He was a father in the faith to them. They embraced it. And they were standing on it, and that is in the perfect tense, meaning that they took their stand on the gospel, and they were still standing upon it today. It was the very foundation of their lives. And Paul says it is the very gospel that had, in fact, saved many of the Corinthians. You'll note, though, that there's a condition here you'll see the word if. It's the gospel that has saved you if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Listen, not everyone who tips their hat at the name of Jesus is in the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who professes Christ possesses Christ. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is in fact a Christian. If you don't believe me, just take it from the words of Jesus where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
There are people who will know his name. There are people who will bow before him. There are people who will profess, Lord, Lord, they get the name right. But by the very demonstration and fruit of their lives, Christ was never Lord of their life. He had never redeemed them. They had continued to live for themselves and for this world. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. People demonstrate a fickle and temporary response to the gospel all the time. You can think about Jesus giving us the parable of the soils. Those first three soils are, are people in, in some way, shape, or form had some association with the Bible, and yet, though they may have even started out professing it in time, either persecution drives them away, they don't like to be disliked, they don't like to be different than other people, perhaps... It's the worries and concerns of the world and the pursuit of wealth that, 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 that is so weedy and overgrows their life that it chokes out their faith. Whatever the case, there are many who will get there in that day only to find that they are not in the kingdom of heaven. This is why the book of 1 John and James were given to us, that we might look in the mirror of those books they're written to help us understand who's in the kingdom and who isn't. Paul, at the end of 2 Corinthians, says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Peter says in 2 Peter, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Like I said, this is the ultimate issue of life. And true gospel commitment is one that must never be abandoned. Endurance is evidence of a genuine faith. It's day by day, it's lived out in fruitful obedience and the imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what do you do? You hear the gospel, you receive the gospel, you stand upon the gospel, you're saved by the gospel, you embrace the gospel and you hold fast to it till the end. Now what specifically is the gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse three. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. Listen, everything in the Bible is important, and yet some things in the Bible are more important. And Paul says, if you're going to catch anything, catch this gospel. It is of first importance. It goes to the top of the stack. This thing is paramount. Remember that Paul received the gospel directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't learn it from his parents. He wasn't taught it in, in school by his professors. He got it from Jesus. This is Jesus' gospel. It is the only gospel. It is the one gospel that he has given his approval to, his stamp of approval. It is God's saving message. Now, what is it? What are these irreducible affirmations? Well, look at the similarities be, between what Paul preaches and what Jesus preached back in Luke 24. Number one, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This is where the good news of the gospel begins. Man has a sin problem that he cannot remedy. God has a solution. And the solution is found right there at the end of verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. I want you to note two things. One, Christ died for our sins. And secondly, that he died according to the Old Testament. 
Jesus Christ died a death, theologians would say, of penal substitution. In other words, we have broken God's law for which the penalty is death. Jesus Christ suffered the death penalty in the sinner's place. His people's sins were placed upon him. He suffered in their stead. We also see that this text tells us that Jesus died a death that was expected by the prophets. This is something that we've been foretold in the Old Testament. I was tempted this morning to say you have two minutes. Write down as many texts as you can that that teach you in the Old Testament the gospel. It would be a good exercise. It's very obvious, actually, if you have much acquaintance with the Old Testament at all, that Jesus It was prophesied that Jesus would die. We know from Genesis 3.15, for instance, that we're told that that the woman would bear a seed that would, in time, though he is struck on the heel, would in fact crush the serpent's head. That is a very early reference, perhaps the earliest reference to the death of Christ. If you were here the other night for uh, Good Friday, Charles spoke from Exodus 12 about the Passover and the lamb who was slain after the father had confessed the family's sins over this lamb. The lamb's blood was shed and the children would say, why why did you take the life of that lamb? Do you remember that the lamb lived with the family for four days? And their kids, why did this, this pet Why did this beautiful creature have to die? And the father would explain that this lamb is taking our place so that we would be preserved through the night when the death angel would come and take the lives of the firstborn. A lamb, blood, the wood of a doorpost or the wood of a cross, All of this foreshadowed the death of Christ. You can go to the book of Leviticus and you have the entire sacrificial system. You have the scapegoat that they they would confess their sins over and then lead so as far as east is from west, they would lead it out of the camp to come back no more. All of this foreshadowed Christ. The blood of myriads of animals that were sacrificed, all of it in anticipation of the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. John 3.16, which is a verse I would venture that most of you have memorized, stands on the shoulders of John 3.14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. You remember Numbers 21 when the people complained about the food that God had provided and God got weary of their complaining and he sent in venomous snakes and they had bit the people and the people confessed their sin to Moses and said, Moses, intercede for us, which Moses did. And then God said, Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a staff, on a standard, put it up, and anyone who is bit by the snake who comes and looks on that staff with faith will in fact be healed from their fatal wound. Jesus says, it's just like that. 
people have been bit with the venom of sin. It is a fatal disease. It will cost you your life unless you look to the cross upon which he hung by faith. And he promises to heal all who will look at him, look on him. Flip with me to Isaiah 53, a very familiar passage. We read these words, verse 2, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look on him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. Who's he referring to? This is written 750 years before the Lord Jesus Christ walked the earth, and yet think of it in such graphic detail. This is high death. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Here's the gospel. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned aside to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, the sin of us all, the trespass of us all, to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. We're going to come back to that passage in a little bit if you want to keep your finger there. But I, I would say this, the bells should have been ringing loudly. They should have been pealing at full volume when John the Baptist declares, looking at Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Beloved, the gospel of Christ is not a New Testament phenomenon. It's an old, old story planned from before the foundation of the world, foretold by the prophets and accomplished in time. It is according to the scriptures. Can we pull over here and can I ask you, do you believe this much? That Jesus Christ suffered and died upon the cross once and for all. That he died a substitute for your sins, bearing the guilt of your sins, suffering the stroke and the punishment that you were due. Do you believe this much? This is the very starting point. You cannot be saved if you will not acknowledge your sin and that there is one Savior and that is the very Lamb of God. God says he will not leave the guilty unpunished, and that is the bad news that makes the good news so good. For the wages of sin is death, 
but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He, the Father, made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. I am the way, Jesus said, and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You see, if there were any other way to God, then Paul would be preaching a different doctrine. If there was some right that you could do, if you could just be baptized, then Paul would be baptizing. If you could just do a bunch of good things to recommend yourself to God, Paul would have laid out a a to-do list for you. But the only thing Paul offers you and the only thing Jesus offers you is the gospel which speaks of a suffering Christ on a cross for sins which we have committed against him. Well, our gospel is not complete if all we understand is the Lord's death. Christ was also buried according to the scriptures. You'll remember that in order to expedite death, the Romans would come to the cross and they would break the, the shin bones of those who were hanging there so they no longer had any ability, no leverage to press up on, that, on those nails and be able to get a breath and they would die ultimately of uh, asphyxiation. You'll also remember that Jesus' legs were not broken, and that was for two reasons. First of all, because he was dead, and more first of all, because God had prophesied that the Christ's bones would not be broken. Do you remember? That was true of the Passover lamb. That was true in Psalm 34, 20, where it says that not a bone of him shall be broken. Those are Old Testament anticipations of the Messiah, the dying Christ. And when the Lord's body was taken down off of that cross, what you had was a brutally beaten and blood-splattered corpse. The Messiah was dead. He didn't fake it. He didn't swoon. They didn't make it up. They went to great lengths to make sure that the tomb was sealed and that the body was, in fact, in there and that he was dead. You remember that the Romans actually plunged a, a... a spear through his side to make certain he was dead. And what is it that you do with a dead body? Well, obviously you bury it, which is just what they did with Christ's body. And many of us have stood at enough gravesides to know how final that is. The weight of that as you lower that casket down into the tomb. Now, in Jesus' case, of course, their tombs were above ground. They were cut into the limestone rock. Those who could afford a burial were put in there, and then they would recycle it. Once you had decayed to the point that your bones were there, they would remove your bones, and they would place them somewhere, and, and they'd lay another person in your spot. The real point of mentioning the burial of Christ is to communicate the fact that Jesus was in fact really dead. And his burial is part of his full identification with us. 
And because the price of sin is death, Jesus really and truly died. And though it's not explicitly stated in our text, it is certainly implied that Jesus not only died according to the scriptures, but that he was buried according to the scriptures. Can you think of Old Testament references to the burial of Christ? Where would we find them? Well, Jesus says we find one in Jonah. I'll just read it to you from the book of Matthew, chapter 12. Verses 39 and 40. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just, listen, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah serves as a type. He is a sign. He is a historical person that prefigures the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's like a, a shadow would tell us about the thing, the, the object that is actually there that is casting the shadow. There's a lesser thing that makes, uh, uh, highlights a, a greater thing, anticipates a greater thing. And so Jonah spent three days in the belly of a great fish. That is a type or a shadow that prefigures Christ's burial and ultimately his resurrection. I told you we go back to Isaiah 53, if you still have a finger there, beginning in verse 8. Remember, we're looking at examples in the Old Testament that Jesus' burial was foretold. The text tells us that after Christ was taken away, it says, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the strike was due? Here's a direct reference to his grave. Verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. Jesus, the Bible tells us, was a man of sorrows. He was a man who did not have a home He was a man who did not have a place, he said, to lay his head. And he was crucified as a common criminal, and in that sense, he was with wicked men in his death. And what should have been his lot, what was always the lot of those who were crucified, because they were accursed, they were taken out to the Valley of Gehenna, they were thrown off the cliff, they were thrown onto the smoldering pile where they would gradually just be consumed by the ashes and the fire. That is not what happened to Jesus. No, there was a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea who gave Jesus a king's burial in a tomb in which no one had ever been lain. God moved Joseph's heart. You remember that Joseph was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. He was a secret disciple of the Lord Jesus. And he gave to the Lord his burial plot. So from the Older Testament, we could preach the death and the burial of Christ. But what about the resurrection? That's our third point this morning, that Christ was raised 
on the third day according to the scriptures. The resurrection is well established in the Old Testament, contrary to to what many think. And honestly, we'll just be able to scratch the surface this morning. We may be able to turn to a few select passages, but I want you to think of it this way. I want you to envision one of those lamps that perhaps you have in your house that's got a three-way light. The first click, you get mood lighting. You get sort of light, right? The next click, it gets a little bit brighter, and you tell the kids, don't turn it up all the way because we're trying to save money in this house. And then there's that third click, which is the one you want when you're reading. You want it to be clear and bright. A three-way light bulb, here we go. Low-intensity scriptures that point to the resurrection. These are more shadows. These give hints and intimations. These are potential illusions. I spent an inordinate amount of time this week reading up on this question about the third day. Have you ever noticed how often the third day comes up as you're reading through the New Testament? Over and over and over again, more than two dozen times I found in the New Testament where this third day talk comes up. Half the time it's out of Jesus' mouth. And the question is, why the third day? The New Testament is crystal clear that the resurrection of Christ would be on the third day. Where does this time marker come from? Now, I'm just going to tell you right up front. If there are any Priscilla's or Aquila's out there who would like to invite me to their house to show me the way of God more accurately, I would appreciate it. Don't send me a ton of stuff. You've got to invite me over, okay? But I desperately want to know. I, I still haven't resolved it. What is the importance of the third day? There are many third day references in the Old Testament. Many of them. It's clear, right, that this third day comes out of the Old Testament. He says that it's according to the scriptures. I found a number of different things. Here's one of the most intriguing In Genesis chapter 1, we have the days of creation laid out for us. And you'll remember that God says, let there be light. There was light, and the light was good. It separated light from darkness. God called the day, the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, morning, one day, day one. Then the Lord said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and he separated the waters from the waters. He made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was an evening, and there was a morning, a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Plants yielding seed and fruit trees and the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their own kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. 
Well, you might be tempted to think that all that was being laid out there was just a simple day-by-day detailing of the creation, and you'd certainly be right. The question is, is that all that was intended? If you flip over in 1 Corinthians 15, and you look at verses, we'll start in verse 39. This is the same chapter on the same subject of the resurrection. And Paul is going to roll back through the days of creation in reverse order until he gets to the third day. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh. He's talking here about the nature of the resurrection body. You still hanging with me here? All right. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, and another of fish. You'll notice he's just worked back through day six, back to day five. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. The glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. We're at day four, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection from the dead. It is sown. That's planting. That's agrarian. That's farming language. That's a seed. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There's also a spiritual body. So it is also written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, and the last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. I don't know. Maybe that's why he raises on the third day. Again, I'm open to any and every invitation. When God exiled, think of this, when God exiled Adam and Eve from the garden, it says this, we don't want them to stretch out their hand and take also from the tree of life and eat lest they live, what, forever. There was already a pointing to a resurrected life, an eternal life, an immortal life. And God in his grace bars them from it so that we might one day be reconciled to God through the blood of Christ and dwell again forever with him. We can look at pictures of those who are resurrected to life like like Lazarus and others in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Elijah raised a widow's son. Elisha raised a Shunammite's son. There was an interesting story in 2 Kings 13 about a man who was being buried, but suddenly they were attacked and they were in a hurry, so they chucked him into Elisha's tomb and what happened the man hit, touched Elijah's bones and pow he was resurrected back to life and came to his feet that's cool right that is cool Hosea chapter 6 verses 1 to 3 I'm just going to read it to you because I've got to move come let us return to the Lord this is Israel speaking for he has torn us but he will heal us he has wounded us but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Again, we get this picture of plants. 
That's all low intensity stuff. What about medium intensity? Let's give that lamp another click. We could take the time, but we won't because we're out of time. But Ezekiel chapter 37, you remember the vision that Ezekiel has of the valley of, of dead bones, one of the greater episodes in scripture. That's one of those top 10 things I'd have liked to have been there to see. All those very dry bones that God commands Ezekiel to, to declare to them, stand up. And lo and behold, those bones started shaking and rattling and stood up and sinew was put on them and before him suddenly was a great army. And the vision anticipated Yahweh's resurrection and restoration of the nation of Israel so that in verses 12 and 13 of Ezekiel 37, we read this, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will, here's the application of the illustration, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your open graves. How many times can he say it? Jesus again made a direct connection to Jonah who was entombed, as we saw in the fish, literally in the belly of Sheol, that is the place of the dead, in the heart of the sea, and then he was, shall we say, projected out off onto the land. That was an illustration, a type again, of the resurrection of Christ. Again, I'm just going to tell it to you. Or you can turn there, whatever. Genesis 22. But you remember that Isaac, this promised son, Abraham finally has the son of his own loins, the son of Sarah's body, the son of the promise. God says to him, Abram, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. And you ought to hear that again. Take your son, your only son. Does that trigger your thinking? Your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains to which I will send you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. Note this, I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. How are we coming back when I'm supposed to sacrifice him? Well, we get divine commentary on that in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 19, where it says that Abraham considered that God was able, again, that he's looking back and telling us what was in Abraham's mind. Abraham considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead, which also he received him back. And here's our word again as a type, literally as a parable. He is a figure, an analogy, a picture of Christ. That's all just medium intensity. We can crank that lamp up one more time. High intensity texts that teach that Jesus' resurrection 
would in fact take place. Job says, if a man lives, or if a man dies, shall he live again? Chapter 14, verse 14. And he seems to answer in the affirmative. He says, all the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. And then in chapter 19 and verses 25 and 26, he answers it definitively. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself will behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. Job knew he was going to the grave. Job also knew that flesh was coming up and out and that he would be able to see his Redeemer. The Psalms have many statements about the resurrection. I've picked just a couple. David writes in Psalm 17, 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. And that is from death. 21, 4 and 91.16, speaking of the Messiah, we read this, he asked of life of you, and you gave it to him. Length of days, how long? Forever and ever. That certainly speaks of the resurrected Christ, the King of kings who rules forever and ever. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we see the Son of Man, the Messiah, depicted as one whose dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not pass away. Jesus is not buried in a tomb somewhere in the Middle East. He has risen and ascended and is at the right hand of God. And he is returning. And his kingdom will not pass away. Daniel 12, 2, one of the clearest resurrection texts in the Old Testament. Speaking of that great resurrection day yet to come, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Like I said earlier, heaven or hell. I'm just going to give you these two references. We don't have time to go there. Isaiah 25, 8 and 9. Isaiah 26 and verse 19. All of these are plain indication that the Older Testament taught the bodily resurrection from the dead, which is why the Pharisees believed it, which is why Martha understood when Jesus asked the question about Lazarus and whether he would live, what did she say? I know that he will rise in the last resurrection on the last day. Well, of course she did, because the Bible, the Old Testament, clearly teaches it. What about the resurrection of the Messiah himself? Well, Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, we didn't read it, but you can write that down again. It says that the Messiah will see his offspring, that his days will be prolonged and that he will be satisfied. We do need to go to one more text, and that is Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Verse 8, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh 
also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Now David wrote this psalm. And David might have said, rightfully about himself, that I've set the Lord continually before me, that he's at my right hand, I'll not be shaken. Uh, My glory rejoices, my flesh will dwell securely. That is true of David. But what is said there in verses 8 and 9, while that can be true of David, verse 10 cannot. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The point of Peter in Acts chapter 2 and the point of Paul in Acts chapter 13 in quoting this text referring to the resurrection of Christ as they preach the only gospel that Jesus ever approved of is that that could not be because the body and the bones of David were still with us to this day. But Christ did not undergo decay. You can look those passages up, Acts 2, 22 to 38, and Acts 13, 26 to 37. That is the way that the apostles, that is the way that Jesus himself preached the gospel from the Old Testament. The fact that Jesus died and was buried and was raised, they're all foretold. And I I want to say just in a moment of personal application here. Listen, if you're here this morning and you have not come all the way to Christ for salvation, if you are still doubting, if you find yourself this morning too educated and too sophisticated to believe in any of this nonsense about people rising from the dead, I I, I want you to hear what Moses and the prophets said this morning. Jesus said, if you will not listen to the Old Testament testimony, let alone the New Testament of the resurrection of Christ, if you walk out of here this morning saying, I don't know what that was or why I attended that service and who does that guy think he is anyway to tell me all that stuff about myself, my friend, don't do that. The consequences are astronomical for your arrogance and your unbelief. You must hear what Jesus has said. You must hear what the Old Testament teaches us. I don't know if you caught it in Daniel, but there is one thing that is very, very clear. There is not a person here or anywhere else in this world who is not going to eventually come up and out of the grave. Life is eternal. You will be resurrected one way or the other. The distinction is, is where you will be resurrected to, either to, to salvation through Christ and eternal glory or to judgment and condemnation eternally to hell. The issue, as I said earlier, could not be more serious Whoever you are, and I know this about you because the Bible says it, you know, you know, you know, at the core of your being, you know that there is life beyond the grave. This earth is not all there is. And I know that you know that because God put eternity in your hearts. 
God instilled it in you to know that, that man was not just some, some biological accident that happened and then just disappears. That's fanciful thinking. If that brings you any comfort at the thought of your death, that somehow you'll just simply be annihilated, that you'll go back to dust, that, that really there's no meaning or point to life other than trying to suck all the pleasure you can get out of it. Listen, the Bible affirms that life is forever. There is no reincarnation. The Eastern religions have it dead wrong. There is no annihilation. There is no soul sleep. There is no ethereal sort of spiritual kind of, kind, of, kind of existence in this world, twilight zone existence. And I've been to way too many Christian or non-Christian funerals to know that it gets said at every memorial and it's all wishful thinking that in fact, you will go to a better place. That is all a false hope. I am the way. And no man comes to the Father but by me. And the issue before you, unbeliever, this morning are these very three affirmations. Do you believe that Christ died for our sins? Do you believe that he was buried and truly dead? And do you believe that he was in, then risen according to the scriptures? It's in your Bible from front to back. And I tell you this with real genuine concern in my heart, genuine concern, that if you do not repent and believe this gospel, then you will die in your sins and you will be punished forever for your rebellion against God for all eternity in hell. And I tell you that like a man on the shore wanting to warn some kayakers that they're about to go over a deadly waterfall a hundred yards downstream. I, I would scream at the top of my lungs if I thought it would, would move you to turn to Christ for hope. Have you turned from your sin and self and bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ who is the risen Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I tell you this morning, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your past is. You have never stored up so, such a load of sin that, that Christ cannot forgive it. Christ can forgive any and all sins except your rejection of him. He is a willing savior and no, he turns no one away who comes in humble repentance and sincere faith. And brother and sister in Christ this morning, what benefit is there to, to dragging you through a number of Old Testament passages? Why would we do that? Only for this end, that you might be strengthened in your confidence and hope, that you might see the resurrection is not a recent development in Christianity, but see it through the eyes of the Old Testament. That you might enrich your study and enjoyment of the word as you read through trying to solve that problem. Why the third day? I can't wait. Somebody's going to help me with that. I want you to be able to anticipate the day of your departure and rest in the certainty of your eventual resurrection. It was promised the Messiah that he would rise from the dead, and he did. He has promised you that if you trust in him, you too will rise from the dead to everlasting life. You can trust him. The first promises were fulfilled. His promises will be fulfilled. You, brother and sister, can look death square in the eye. You don't have to patch it with a flimsy 
sort of patch that, that might hold air in your tire to the very end of your life, understand this thing is rock solid. And you can proclaim with Paul, oh death, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your victory? Which you might have guessed is another Old Testament reference that comes from Hosea chapter 13 and verse 14. Brother and sister, skip the memorial palooza. Brother and sister, put away the Hawaiian <laughs> scatter cruises with the ukulele and the conch shells. They're expensive. You don't need it. Something more glorious has been promised to you. You don't need to fear death. You don't need to deny death. You don't need to dress up death. You don't, you don't need to put the fun in funeral. You can only put so much lipstick on a pig anyway, right? For you, beloved, to live is Christ and to die is right. On that day, this mortal will have put off or put on immortality and will come about the saying that death is swallowed up in victory. Our God and Father, by the mighty resurrection of your Son, Jesus, you have destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Grant that we who have been raised with him through faith may abide in his presence and rejoice forever and ever with him, with you, with the Holy Spirit. To you be dominion and power and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Rejoice as you go.